The most painful attack is friendly fire. It's when people on your side or in your team turn upon you and harm you. Some of the hardest times that I've experienced in my life have been when I've not been able to fully trust people in my own team. We're trying to deal with all these crises out there, which are difficult but normal, and yet at the same time they're attacks from within, by those right next to us or above us or below us in the organisational chart. And that friendly fire just seems so much harder than than the enemy fire. We know that President Vladimir Zelensky is under brutal attack from the Russians. But when you see all of his closest compatriots gathered around him in the bunker in Kiev, you know that his team is united against the enemy. But if there was a rat in the ranks, if, if someone from within was undermining what they were doing, it would cripple and seriously undermine the strength of their defence. Well, in the first 25 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus gather around himself a group of close friends. And they've been with him through thick and thin. And it's been very clear who the enemies are. The enemies the Jewish leaders who refuse to recognise Jesus as their king, their Messiah. The enemy is out there and Jesus has fought with them on many occasions. But in today's chapter, we see that the attack on Jesus' life will be friendly fire. And we'll see how one by one, his closest friends will leave him as Jesus alone. And they will leave him because only he is able to represent Israel as her servant. Jesus has just finished his so-called apocalyptic discourse and now we get verse 1 of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, two whole chapters of them, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He has been speaking at length about how the Son of Man will come to Jerusalem. And now he makes it clear that the time for that event is closer than ever before. And as he told the disciples earlier, the event will see him handed over to be crucified. That he would experience the most painful and cruel execution method that's ever been invented. And with that still ringing in their ears, the action switches. It switches over to the home of the Jewish high priest, verse 3. At that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. These men who teach God's people how to obey the Ten Commandments and to love the law are trying to work out how to execute Jesus of Nazareth. Can you see the irony there? The religious leaders want to execute Jesus. And the only reason that they think, ooh, let's go easy on this, is they don't want to see a riot happen. Especially at that time, when there's so many people visiting Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, only a day away. But then the action switches again. Verse 6. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who 
had previously had leprosy. Uh, Jesus is outside Jerusalem, not inside Jerusalem. And he's at Simon's home. What do we know about Simon? He's a guy who had leprosy before, but no more. Why is that? Because Jesus healed him. That's what Jesus does. We've just heard about all these religious leaders who want to kill the guy who brings life and love to others. And right now Jesus is at the very home of one of those guys. Hard to see a greater contrast. But then something weird happened. Verse 7. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over Jesus' head. Will you agree with me that that's a bit weird? It's a bit weird, okay. I don't know if you've ever had anyone walk up to you and say, G'day, how you going? Chanel number five. It's weird, it's not normal. And it, you know, if it was me and I'm getting the stuff in my eyes, I'd be a bit freaked out. But it turns out that that's not the reason that they were weirded out by it. In fact, verse 8, the disciples we read were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. It's very smelly. But worse than that, it was a waste of money, which could have been used to care for the poor. But Jesus wasn't going to go down that line. He disagreed with them. Jesus, aware of this, he replied, Why criticise this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus describes the act as a a good thing. Other translations talk about it as a beautiful thing. Because she's recognised it was a very special moment in history. This perfume pouring was a really good thing. It's an event worth spending money on. Like an expensive wedding. It's like, oh, why do we have to spend so much money on just one day? It's like, because it's the one day. Oh, the funeral? Why do we bother spending all that money on his funeral? It's like, because it's his funeral? She has poured, verse 12, this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. She recognised that Jesus is dead man walking. And because he's as good as dead, she treats his body like it's dead. That's the thing everyone's missed. She could see that Jesus was staring death in the face and she was prepared to use that expensive gift to glorify her Messiah. She got it. And Jesus recognises her amazing act. It's quite, listen to this, this is quite a powerful verse. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world... This woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in Jamboree, talking about this woman's amazing act of love to the man she realised was greatest because he was dead. Amazing. But the beauty of her act is now contrasted with a horrible act. Verse 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and he asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, 
Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas, Judas made the deliberate decision to hand over Jesus to be killed. Now, in a way, now don't misunderstand what I'm about to say now, but in a way, I kind of wish that Judas did it because he couldn't agree with Jesus' theology or his ministry or his leadership. And, and, you know, here's this guy, Jesus. He's coming in and he's disrupting the religion and he's causing division and he's causing these problems. We need to get rid of him out of this ministry. I could sort of understand, I disagree, but I could sort of understand why Judas might do that. But he did it for money. He did it for money. Did you see the contrast? They're saying, oh, think of all the money we could have made by the perfume. And Judas comes along and it's like, huh, I want to get money. And when they pay him the price, here's your 30 pieces of silver, he now is starting to think, how am I going to do what I've been paid to do? We'll hear more about the portrayal in a moment. Because now, at this moment, we're back with the disciples. Verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? It's a very important day in the life of God's people. It's the moment that they remember that God rescued his people out of Egypt. The Passover remembers the rescue from Egypt when they obeyed the rescue instructions. They were to kill a lamb and place the blood around their front door. And if they did that, the household and everybody in it would be freed from the plague of the death of the firstborn. And, and part of the instructions was make up some bread without any yeast. Make up some unleavened bread. And that's where the bread and the wine come from, from the Passover. The remembrance of the blood of the lamb and the unleavened bread. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And they're getting ready to remember that special event. And so Jesus, actually, they say, well, what are you going to, what do you want us to do to prepare you us for it? Well, Jesus actually has kind of prepared them already. Because he says, verse 18, as you go into the city, you'll see a certain man, tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. Uh, in a sense... Jesus is the one who prepares the Passover meal for them by getting everything in place. And then the meal begins, verse 20. It was evening. Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. For 11 of the 12 disciples, that cut them to their very heart. Verse 22, greatly distressed. Each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? Am I the one, Lord? Am I the one, Lord? 11 times, 12 times. You think, how is this even possible? How could one of the 12, the closest friends of Jesus, be prepared to be the rat in the ranks? How could one of them possibly hand Jesus over to the enemies. And one by one they ask if they are the perpetrator. Bit weird, isn't it, to say, Lord, is it me? Why would, you, 
Why would I say to Jesus, is it me? I mean, do I have no self-awareness? Do I kind of like do things in my sleep and I'm not aware of it? I wonder if it's, I just thought about this. Are they, are they asking Jesus, are they going to do it because they thought it was such a horrible, evil thing that they might do it by some strange brain snap or something? You know, that they're not ready to do it, but they're going to do it subconsciously or unawares or something like that. Because it's just so out of character that any of the 12 would do that. And Jesus answered in verse 23 by saying, well, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. One of them there will, in fact, betray him, but not by chance, not by accident. Verse 24, he says, For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. The most evil event in the history of the universe, was planned by God and predicted in God's word. The betrayal was planned by God. The crucifixion of the Son of Man is plan A. And it was God's plan to make it happen. And God would make all of the events take place to fulfil his purpose. But it doesn't take away from the personal responsibility of the man who did that evil. For him, it would be better that he was never born. Imagine someone saying that about you. It'd be better that you were never born. That's a pretty full-on offensive way of describing your life. That's how Jesus describes this guy. The joy that you brought your parents. Oh, goo, 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 goo. All of that love. Oh, he's walking. Oh, isn't that lovely? All of that. Better if it never happened. Everything that he did as he went with the twelve going around and leaving stuff behind to serve Jesus and be with them and all the good works and the good things and all those things, better they, he never did them at all. Better that he was never alive. Better that his name was never ever mentioned by anyone ever. And then we find out who he is. We already know, don't we? We've read, but those in the room hadn't, but now they do. Because Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Well, that's going to make a pretty interesting dinner, don't you think? It's sort of like, you know, hey, Passover, Hava, Negila, all this kind of happy stuff. It's kind of like, ah. Uh. But the Passover meal continues. Verse 26. As they were eating with a heavy heart, surely. You forget that bit, don't you? As they're eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he, he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink for it, from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. In that moment, right there, Jesus radically redefines the Passover. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Because the bread is now to represent Jesus' body. 
And the blood of the lamb is to represent his blood. That's what he's saying. And more than that, the amazing salvation of the Passover and the Exodus, the great gospel event of the whole Old Testament that over and over again is sung about with joy as they go through the Psalms, all of that is to be dramatically upgraded by the more amazing salvation of the death of Jesus. Jesus is the new Passover lamb whose blood would bring an even greater salvation. And what's more, it will confirm the covenant, the promise that's between God and his people. Every time we have the Lord's Supper in our church, we remember that moment in history. But we remember that moment as it remembers the moment that is to come, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then Jesus talks about what will happen after his death. He says, mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's basically going to happen real, real soon, as you can see. And with that they leave. Verse 30, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder what hymn you'd sing. What hymn would you sing? You've heard that Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of the twelve. And Jesus is talking about his self, himself as though he's dead. My body, my blood. You sing a hymn. Oh, happy day. I don't know, it's kind of like a bit heavier than that, isn't it? It's something in a minor key. Well, then they go to the Mount of Olives. That, that real sort of kind of um, you know, apocalyptic location that we've heard about that's referred to so often in the book of Zechariah as they look down upon what will happen in the end times. But things were about to get worse, verse 31. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You know where that's from in the Bible? Zechariah, chapter 13. You've got to have the, the back end of Zechariah in front of you as you're looking at the end of Matthew's gospel, I tell you. But the point of this is, all 12 disciples will desert him. Betrayal by one, and then desertion by the other 11. The friendly fire of one would result in them all going. But there was hope, because Jesus said, after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. He's saying, bad stuff's about to happen, but... I will be with you. We're going to have a, re a resurrection reunion in Galilee, up north where we, we spend so much time. But even with that powerful sort of stuff, the disciples are like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. what did you say? That we will desert you? Like, we're not like that other guy. No, no, it's not us. In fact, Peter, the unofficial leader, says, even if everybody else deserts you, I will never desert you. No chance. But Peter's wrong. Verse 34, Jesus said, I, I, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter says, 
No, you're wrong, Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. We only hear of Peter, but, well, actually, the other ones are there saying, and all the other disciples bowed the same. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. I don't know whether it would be nicer if we didn't have those verses and they just betray you, you know, divert, desert them, or whether it's harder to know that what just happened there when they say, oh, no, no, we're with you, we're with you, 100%. Because it's inconceivable to think that they'd walk away from him. It's not like they just met him in the park that day. They've lived with him. They've given up everything to be with him. And they've heard him, seen him, loved him, been loved by him. He says, we are going to stick with you, mate, no matter what. But there's no more talk of the conversation because the location changes again. Verse 36. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. But soon, Jesus fell apart. Verse 37, he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Crushed with grief to the point of death. If you're ever listening out to a friend who's going through a hard time and they say to you, I am crushed with grief to the point of death, they're not mucking around. They are in a deep, deep hole. And I think that's what you've got to hear Jesus saying here. I am at the bottom of the bottom. Crushed. And you would think if you heard Jesus say that, it's like, whoa, whoa. everybody... We've got to look after this guy. And so he says in verse 39, he went on a little farther and he bowed with his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Please, father, please, he is in the greatest hole of his life and he is begging his father for a way out. But in the end, his father's will was more important than the son's desire. Yet not my will but yours. But then he turns back to his disciples Verse 40, and uh, he found him asleep. He said to Peter, Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? I mean, how bad do I need to be that you would stay awake? Like, I can't get any worse than I am. And you are snoozing, all of you. So he tells him again, verse 41, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He tells them what he said back in chapter 24. Keep watch, keep watch, keep watch and pray, Jesus asked his disciples. 
do it so that you'll avoid temptation. What temptation might that be? Maybe the temptation to desert him, perhaps. Then verse 42, Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken unless I drink it, your will be done. He's talking about the cup of suffering. In his anguish, he remains loyal to his father's will. Nothing will get in the way of him achieving the mission that he shares with the father. Even though it is a road marked with suffering, he chose to follow his father's will. But he's the only guy who can be loyal to the mission because, verse 43, when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Again. I mean, you know what it's like when you're up all night for an all-night movie trilogy binge and it's getting near the end and your eyes are so heavy and you can't fall asleep? Well, I can understand why you might just sort of doze off a bit. But if your life is at risk or a dear friend or family member is on the edge of, of absolute despair, are you just going to go and sleep? You're going to have the adrenaline rushing around inside. You're going to have, it's like, look, there's 11 of us. Can, can we just at least take turns for somebody to do push-ups and, and jog or something to stay awake? It's that serious. But nobody else is able to do what Jesus had to do. Nobody could do it. All of them were unable to persevere with that mission. Nobody could take the sins of the world. No one else but Jesus. Nobody else could save those people, only Jesus. Because even the great Peter and John and Paul, uh, Peter and John and, and, and uh, sorry, Peter and John couldn't rest and the rest, they could not even stay awake for an hour together. There's Peter, there's John, there's all of the disciples and they couldn't even stay away for an hour together. In verse 44. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And he came to the disciples and he said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up. Let's be going. My betrayer is here. Jesus returns a third time and they're asleep again. But it's too late because this is about to happen, verse 47. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests and the elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came right up to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. The time of betrayal has come and it is as horrible as you might expect. Actually, that's not true. It's more horrible than you might expect. <laughs> if Jesus... If Judas had have given Jesus, you know, kind of a Will Smith kind of slap, that would have been a lot less tragic, wouldn't it? That's what you'd expect. But what does he do? 
she gives him the gesture of a, of a friend, a kiss. And look how Jesus addresses him. Verse 50. My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. My friend. You can't make this stuff up. I, I'm sure that if I was Judas and I had given Jesus that kiss, I would like, I would have preferred probably for Jesus to have spat in my face, I reckon. Might have made it just a little bit easier. But instead he says, my friend. And with that, Jesus is arrested. But not without more drama, verse 51. One of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword, struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realise I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he'd send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Jesus says it's all happening according to plan. Even the evil that the participants willingly chose to perform is part of the bigger picture for God to see the scriptures fulfilled in the arrest of Jesus. So Jesus then turns to those who came for his arrest and he says, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. See, again, Jesus makes it very clear that these events are his destiny. It's all happening according to plan. As was this. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. There it is. Only an hour or so after their emphatic declaration of loyalty, they'll run away. How tragic. How pathetic. Then the captured Jesus is taken to the most senior Jewish leader in the land. Verse 57, the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and elders had gathered. They are all there together, the most senior religious leaders, and there's Jesus in front of them. But there is one disciple who hasn't fully fled just yet. Because we read in verse 58 that Peter followed Jesus at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. He blended in. He didn't stand out. But he was there. And he watched this, verse 59. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus. Yep. They're, they're our religious leaders. You go thing. They did that so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, Two men came forward who declared, Ah, uh, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They tried to stitch him up. The religious rulers tried to falsely accuse Jesus. And the best they could do is to quote back 
his claim to rebuild the temple in three days, which something was clearly metaphorical. But then verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, this is the top dog, right? He says to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't say, tell us if you think you're the Messiah. Or tell us if you claim to be the Messiah. He says, are you the one? Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. That says in the future. More literally, it just says from now, actually. That's what the NIV says. From now, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From this moment, as Israel gathers together representatives of all of those in power, all coming together in the presence of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the Son of God, right there. And what do they do? They reject him. And so from that moment, the Son of Man takes his place of power. From now. And their reaction is horrible. Verse 65, the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror. And he said, blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? They accused Jesus of blasphemy? How could they get that so wrong? And they mock him mercilessly. Why couldn't he recognise who was hitting him? Probably because they'd smashed his face in. It's going from bad to worse. But fortunately, Peter's there, right? Because we read that meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. All the other disciples are gone, but Peter's still there. Hopefully, he'll be able to keep his word and keep faithful to Jesus. Verse 69b, a servant girl came over and said to him, you were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. Oh, I, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, Peter said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. 
And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly, sobbing. He denies him three times and weeps. And that's the end of this tragic chapter in the life of Jesus. It started with Jesus speaking to his close friends about the end of the world. And by the end of the chapter, Jesus is alone. Every disciple has fled from him. And Judas is walking around with pockets full of silver. Friendly fire has exploded and everyone's bleeding. And yet, despite the apparent chaos, it's all going to plan. It's weird to think of it that way, isn't it? How could God plan for this tragic chain of events? How could the bitter tears and broken hearts be part of something good? Well, that's why it's called Good Friday, isn't it? That's when we see why the murder of the Messiah was our greatest day. And we'll understand why it was so beautiful that the woman poured perfume all over the body of Jesus. But in the end, it all makes sense when we read what Isaiah said would happen 700 years or so before Jesus lived. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. 